Good evening, everyone. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to John the fourth chapter. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be launching from in just a moment. We'll be in a number of different passages this evening. And so let's get those Bible pages turning and let's be starting off in John the fourth chapter as we listen to what God has to say to us through the Scriptures. As you're turning there, I will say how great it is to see everybody this evening. It's been just a really nice day, actually. The sunshine has been just a, a very welcome addition to this day, and I've been thankful for it. I hope you've had a good day. I hope you've uh, been able to enjoy this afternoon, and I'm really appreciative of the fact that you are uh, back here again this evening to study from God's Word once more. This is, in many ways, kind of the companion lesson to this morning's sermon. Even if you were not here this morning and had an opportunity to hear that lesson, those lessons are available on our, on our website, through the YouTube channel, or through through our podcast, and I want you to make good use of those because I think that lesson is helpful to really kind of kind of balance out the things that we're going to talk about this evening. And so let's read together in John the fourth chapter. I'm reading here in verse 19. This is the conversation that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman that he encounters at the well. And in John chapter 4, there's lots of things that they converse and discuss about, but eventually the conversation shifts to talking about, about worship. And so in John 4 and in verse 19, the woman then says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I want you to think about the last time that you had a conversation like this one in John chapter 4 where you and another person, maybe it was a co-worker, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was even a family member, were discussing differences in worship practices. Maybe your friend or your co-worker or your loved one, they say and they start talking about where they attend church. They maybe attend a denominational congregation somewhere. And they're telling you about the things that they do in their worship assemblies. And they then turn and ask you, well, well where do you go to church? And you then respond by saying, well, I attend or I am a member of fill-in-the-blank, Lakeside or wherever it may be. And you then complete that sentence by saying the Lakeside Church of Christ. And pretty quickly, just upon hearing those last three little words, that person then says, ah, yes, I know some things about the Church of Christ. Aren't you all the ones who don't believe in music? And of course, as soon as we hear that, we immediately kind of buck up. That kind of gnaws at us a little bit because that's not really a factual statement. That's not really an accurate representation of who we are or what we believe. But we kind of let it slide and we maybe kind of correct it a little bit. And we say, well, yes, we don't use instrumental music in our worship assemblies. And what that then leads to is that then leads to maybe a back and forth conversation, maybe even a bit of a debate about the issue of instrumental versus non-instrumental worship. Here's this person who believes that, hey, you can praise God with singing and the aid of instrumental music. And then over here on the other hand, we are of the persuasion that, well, God really just wants us to worship Him 
in song, with our lips and from our heart. And what I'm going to guess is, is I'm going to guess that if you've had that conversation before, then I'm going to guess that it is generally the same for just about everybody. Maybe you say something along the lines of, well, the reason that we don't use instrumental music in our worship is because, is because that's not authorized in Scripture. And they then respond by saying, well, what about David? Don't you remember David? Have you ever read the book of Psalms? There's all kinds of stuff in there about David using harps and all kinds of other instruments in worship unto God. You then respond and try to explain that, well, yes, that did happen, but David lived under the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, the Old Testament. And we today no longer live under that covenant. We live under the covenant of Christ. We follow His will. It is the New Testament where we find our authority. They then respond with something along the lines of, well, what about the book of Revelation? Last I checked, Revelation is in the New Testament. I mean, it's right there at the very end, but it is part of the New Testament. And when you read in Revelation, you read about, you read about harps in heaven. Sounds like there's going to be instrumental music in heaven, so what about that? You then maybe respond by saying, well, first of all, Revelation is a highly figurative book. Lots of imagery and figures that are used in the book of Revelation. And furthermore, the worship that goes on in heaven is not a pattern for the worship that we offer here on earth in the church today. And maybe then all of that then culminates with the person then saying, well, I appreciate all that, but uh, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. And the net result of all of that back and forth discussion is that you both go your separate ways and nothing is really accomplished. Now occasionally you'll have that conversation with somebody and maybe you're able to take it a little bit further. Maybe you're able to take it a little bit deeper and so you try to say some things about the silence of Scripture. And I don't know about you, but I have found that for me that usually is also oftentimes a very fruitless endeavor. Because what I have found is I have found that people on the other side of this debate, they also will make their argument based on the silence of Scripture. We say that silence is prohibitive. God didn't say anything about it, and so we shouldn't be doing it. They, on the other hand, argue that silence is permissive. Well, since God didn't say anything about instruments, we can do it. It gives us a license to do that. And the net result, once again, at the end of all of that is what? We both end up going our separate ways and nothing is really accomplished. Have you ever had that experience before or at least something closely akin to that when you're discussing this topic? I will tell you, I have had that experience a lot throughout my life. And maybe that says something about the state of the religious world in which we live today and about the inability of many people today to engage in meaningful study and discussion and debate. But you know what? It may not necessarily be just the fault of, of them out there. Maybe that also says something about, about our approach and how sometimes we just go about this instrumental music issue in not exactly the best way possible. Which is why this evening I am wondering if maybe we should reevaluate how we discuss and how we think about this subject. Now I want you to listen to me very carefully and I'm going to say this right here at the beginning. I am not suggesting at all that we need to rethink our position on the instrumental music issue. I have studied it and restudied it. In fact, I kind of started from scratch as I began studying for this lesson and I still arrive at the same conviction about instrumental music. I'm not suggesting that we change our position. 
What I am suggesting is that we need to rethink how we end up arriving at our position and how it is that we then go about articulating that to other folks. You know, in John chapter 4, what we just read here, Jesus has a religious discussion with a person who was of a very different understanding about worship and about how worship was to be done. But I want you to notice that Jesus does not use a bunch of trite, recycled, regurgitated arguments that only serve to just alienate this woman and push her further away. No, what Jesus did was He found some common ground with this woman. And He offered up some simple concepts. And then He tried to just work from there. He talked about things like true worship. You want to be a true worshiper, don't you? I'm sure that woman wanted to be a true worshiper. i got to tell you, all the people that I've ever had the instrumental music discussion with, I firmly believe they wanted to be a true worshiper. Have you found that that is the case with people that you engage with? People want to offer true worship under God. Never met anybody who says, yeah, I want to offer false worship unto God. Never encountered that before. So true worship, let's start with that. Then Jesus talks about that, fleshes that out a little bit more. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. Once again, I think everybody, people of every religious background under the umbrella of Christendom can agree that yes, that is the basis for proper worship. I never met anybody who says, ah, John 4, 24, Jesus, what does that guy know? I don't think he's right about that. Never met anybody who thumbs their nose at that. No, everybody I think can agree that, yep, John 4, 24, that's what we ought to do. We ought to worship God in spirit and truth. In fact, it's not an ought, it's a must. Jesus says it is a must. Now, I think even as well, you talk with people about this subject, I think everybody would admit that, yeah, we all struggle with worshiping God in spirit and in truth. I think everybody kind of wrestles with that to varying degrees. For example, there are people who do really, really good with the in-spirit stuff. These are people who have a good heart, and they are very passionate and they are full of zeal and they have a, a really good attitude about worshiping God. They have a lot of love in their heart for the Lord. But what they struggle with is the other part of that equation. They struggle with that business about in truth. They do that worship in the wrong form. It lacks authority. It's not in line with God's plan and God's way. And the fact of the matter is that also works in reverse as well. I've known people, Christians, who sit in church buildings just like us and we're really solid on that in truth thing. We're going to do things according to the Word of God. We're going to do what is authorized and only what is authorized. Do that in exactly the right way. But where we struggle sometimes is with the in-spirit part. Sometimes we just go through the motions. Our heart is not in it. We maybe don't even participate as we should. Talked about some of those things this morning. And so I think all of us are trying to find the proper balance for that true worship. And I'll say once again, I think that is generally true for most religious people that I know. Most people that I come into contact with that are a part of some kind of a church that's got some kind of a sign out front that says the church of something, all of those people I think want to do what John 4 verse 24 says. And so this evening as we're thinking about how maybe we can discuss this instrumental music subject with them and discuss that in a meaningful and productive way, then why don't we just make that our starting point? Well, what if we just place that right there at the center? That's something we can all agree on. True worship, according to Jesus, is something that must be done in spirit and in truth. We can all agree on that. Let's just place that at the center of everything 
And then let's just work toward that goal. And so this evening what I want to do is I want to give you four very basic, very fundamental principles that help all people, if they really want to, to arrive at that final goal. Four principles that we want to be ready to share with others. In fact, you may even want to jot these four ideas down, maybe in the back of your Bible with some corresponding verses to go along with it so you can break this out anytime that you're discussing these matters with folks. Four principles that you will notice not a single one of them says anything about music or instruments or anything along those lines. No, we're, we're drilling down even deeper than that. Four principles that build upon one another and they help us to see what God deserves. And that is that God deserves the praises of His people. And I'm going to suggest to you that He deserves the praises of His people without instruments. And that just begins with an understanding of what worship is. Can't begin talking about worshiping in spirit and truth if we don't know what worship is. And I don't know how much you've thought about this today as we have gathered together on two occasions now to worship God, but worship is worship is an offering to the Lord. I want to make that very clear tonight. Worship is an offering to God. Worship is not about, listen to me, it is not about what we consume. It is not about what we get. You know, we get from God all of the time. We consume from God all of the time. Worship is not about consumption. Worship is about production. It is about what we give to Him. Worship is an expression of adoration and reverence for God. It is directed upward to Him. We are bringing this offering and we are laying it before His throne. You know, as soon as somebody starts defining and talking about worship in terms of, uh, of receiving something, you know, this is what I get out of worship. This is what I look for to gain in worship. Then that person doesn't know what worship is. That person does not understand what worship is about. Worship is when I bring my gift and I then lay it at the feet of the king. That is my songs, my prayers, my thanksgivings, my heart that is open to his word, my mind that is focused upon his son and upon the cross. All of that, that is the offering that I am bringing and I'm laying it before the Lord. I think there's a really good illustration of that in the book of Revelation. Actually, let's use the book of Revelation. Look in Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, Revelation may not provide and instruct us on everything about worship, but there certainly are some things that we can learn from Revelation about worship. Look in Revelation 4. Here's a good example of that. In Revelation chapter 4, in these visions of heaven, what are people doing up in heaven? Well, in Revelation 4, we're told about these 24 elders. Look in verse 10. Revelation 4 and in verse 10, the 24 elders... They fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. And what are they saying? They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive something. God is going to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Do you see how worship is about offering God something? That He is the one who is the recipient here, not me. You know, even these 24 elders who have been given these beautiful and majestic crowns upon their heads, when they end up approaching the, the throne of God, what do they do with those crowns? 
We're dropping them before the king. We are laying those before him. Worship, worship is a giving over to the Lord. Now, with that understanding, can I just say right here that whatever we're talking about, whatever the subject may be, whether we're talking about biblical Bible-based preaching or entertaining skit-based preaching, whether we're talking about the Lord's Supper observed on a weekly basis or the Lord's Supper being observed annually at Easter time, or whether we're talking about a cappella singing to the Lord versus instrumental music offered to the Lord, whatever it may be, if a person believes that worship is about getting what you want, then that person will never be a true worshiper. Can I say that again? If worship is about getting what you want, then you will never offer true worship to God. This thinking that it's about what I want, getting something for me, and it's about my preferences, that thinking is totally incompatible with what worship is at its very core. It's an offering that we bring to God. Look with me in Romans the 12th chapter. Let's work that out a little bit more. In Romans chapter 12, this is a passage that I think a lot of us know really, really well. And it's an interesting verse because it actually speaks about worship as, as kind of a lifestyle. That It's not just about what we do here in the assembly together, but also it's about what we do in our daily lives as we live as Christians. What I want you to notice in Romans 12 and in verse 1 is the language that Paul connects and associates with worship. In Romans 12 and in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies... Give your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says that in all that we do, we are to present ourselves to God. That is, give ourselves to God. Give our bodies as what? As a living sacrifice. It's an offering. How we live our lives is an offering to the Lord. And what Paul says is he says when that's done in the right way, that is the very definition of worship. It is giving to God what He wants and what He deserves. Which ought to beg the question. We're maybe talking about this with someone who holds different convictions about what God is seeking in worship. Maybe what we wanted to ask the other person is we want to ask, hey, if, if we sit down... And if we do just a very thorough study in the New Testament, and if we explore in depth this issue of worshiping God musically and the issue of instruments being incorporated into that worship, if at the end of that, if we come to find that God never asked for or God never authorized instruments, are you still going to offer those things and use those things in worship unto God? Because, well, because I like the way that they make me feel. I, I like how they sound. I like that, how they help our singing. I, I like what I get out of that. Go find a dictionary. Worship is not about what I get out of it. Worship is about what I give, what I am bringing, and then whether or not God will accept and receive that offering. Which brings me directly to principle number two. And that is that that offering that we bring it absolutely must align with His will. I'm going to spend the most time here on this particular point this evening. Our 
worship, the things that we are bringing to God, it must align with His will. In other words, if I give God something that He does not want, or God something that He has not asked for, then can I really say that I've offered to Him true worship? Can I really be confident in saying that? If I bring God something that is clearly outside of His expressed will, is God in some way obligated to receive and accept that worship? Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6? As He was modeling prayer for His disciples in verse 10. In the middle of that prayer He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we want to be about, isn't it? We want to do His will. And I'm going to be so bold as to say this evening that if what we are doing is not God's will, then it is not, and it can never be true worship. And whatever it is, whether we are talking about music or whether we're talking about anything else, what we need to do is we need to go and we need to find and seek out God's will on that matter. Because unless God said, hey, that's what I want, or hey, that's what I was asking for, or hey, this is what pleases me, then we cannot be certain that it is a proper offering before the Lord. Jesus said, Thy will be done. In fact, can you go back to that passage in Romans 12, or maybe you're still there. In Romans chapter 12, we looked at verse 1. That helps us to understand that worship is a, it's a presenting, it is a giving, it is a sacrifice to God. But look now at verse 2. Look at verse 2, he continues on. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. And I think it's fair to say that there is just so much stuff in the religious world today that is offered up and it's put out there in the name of the Lord. We're doing this in the name of the Lord. We're going to build this and we're going to erect that and we're going to do some of this and we're making plans for that and we're doing all of that, all of this stuff to honor God. And yet, how much of that stuff is stuff that God never even asked for? God never even said that He wanted those things. That not once did God express His desire for a coffee bar in His name. Or not once did God say, hey, I want a smoke and laser light show in the worship service in my name and in my honor. Or any of the other, we could just go down a list and just catalog all kinds of the man-made modern innovations that churches are involved in today. What Romans chapter 12 verse 2 comes along and says, is it says, we don't want to get caught up in any of that kind of stuff. We don't want to be involved in that. Let's not be the kind of people who just conform to the efforts and the whims and the desires of the culture that is around us. Instead, let's discern, let's find out what the will of God is and, and let's just do that. Let's just find out what God wants and then just do what He says. In fact, you do realize that the instrument is used in worship, that that is actually a rather interesting story. In fact, it is a rather recent innovation. Did you know that the use of instruments in worship is something that really has only been in existence, at least commonly, for about the last 200 years or so? Since about 1850, actually that's not even a whole 200 years. Prior to 1850, almost no church in our country used instruments in their worship. You do the math, 1850. That is not that long ago. 
Prior to 1850, no Methodist church used them. No Baptist church used them. The Lutheran church did not use them. Churches of Christ did not use them. Nobody used them except for the Catholic church. And then some of the Reformation movement groups that started to pop up, they began to use them. In fact, did you know as well that some of the leading names, some of the leaders in the denominational world and churches that were popular and still are popular to this day, that many of the leaders of those congregations, they have denounced instrumental music in worship. For example, John Calvin. John Calvin once said that if you're going to use instruments in worship, then you might as well bring golden bowls of incense and animal sacrifice back too. John Wesley the founder of the Methodist Church. John Wesley said, I'm fine with mechanical instruments of music as long as they're neither, neither seen nor heard. And then Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is one of the most well-renowned and beloved Baptist preachers of all time. Charles Spurgeon flat out said, this is not who we are. The question is, well, what happened? What happened in the years since those men were around and spoke so boldly against those innovations? Well, I'll tell you what happened in the last 170 years. What happened is, is our society, our culture, and our world went through some dramatic changes. The effects of the Industrial Revolution is what happened. And that ended up changing a lot of things. It changed things in technology. It changed things in transportation and how people move about from one place to the next. It changed how people were entertained and what they were looking for and the things that they consumed. And as a result of all of that, it ended up changing what people wanted. And it ended up changing what people wanted in worship. Even if that meant going in direct defiance to what the leaders of those churches were saying. Well, my question is this evening, and this is a question that we want to ask our friends is, is are we interested in worshiping according to the will of the culture, the world that is around us? Or are we interested in worshiping according to the will of God? I think Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 ought to answer that question for us. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 15, please. Listen to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus warned against this very kind of thing. He warned against people who would offer things to God and they would do that according to their own ideas, according to man's way of thinking, instead of doing it according to God's way of thinking. In Matthew chapter 15, I'm looking in verse 1. In Matthew 15 verse 1, Pharisees and scribes, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of our elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them, Well, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? He kind of talks about specifically what it is that they were doing. I'm going to jump right past that. Look in verse 7. Here's the summary of all of that. Jesus says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Lock in on that phrase. In vain do they worship me. That sounds like the exact opposite of what we're going for, isn't it? I thought we're going for true worship. Worship that is not vain. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I would submit to you that that right there, that is what has happened to Christianity in America since about 1850. People have constructed man-formulated doctrines and practices and what they have said, if they have said, this, this is what we're going to give God now. And what Jesus comes along in this passage and says is that you know what, even if your tradition dictates it, 
Even if all of your friends, in fact, even if everybody on the whole face of the planet, they back it up and they support it, it will always be vain worship unless it originates from the mind of God. Because worship is about what? It's about bringing an offering to God. It's about giving God what He wants and what He desires. And maybe this is about the place where when we're talking to somebody where we do get met with a little bit of resistance and there's a little bit of pushback. But what we want to really emphasize here is that offering God worship according to His expressed will, that that is not an inconsequential matter. This is not the kind of thing that somebody could just kind of shrug their shoulders at and say, eh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Oh, on the contrary, it is a very big deal. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to show us that it is a big deal. Look at maybe the most notable example of that in Leviticus chapter 10. I will use an Old Testament story to illustrate this principle. In Leviticus chapter 10, this is the story of a couple of worshipers by the name of Nadab and Abihu. In fact, these two men, it would seem, they are actually assisting in leading the rest of the congregation of Israel in their worship. Well, what exactly did these guys do that caused them to kind of go down in infamy and to have their names known and recorded throughout all the annals of Bible history? Well, let's find out. Leviticus 10 verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his censer and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it and they offered unauthorized fire. Some translations say they offered strange fire before the Lord which He had not commanded them. This is something that was outside of the will of God. Was God okay with that? Did God say, ah, not that big of a deal, just carry on? Verse 2, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now I will confess to you that I've probably got more questions than I do answers about that little episode. I wonder, what were those guys thinking? I mean, what, what was their thought process there? I, I often wonder, well, I mean, what makes fire different if it's gathered from one place as opposed to another place? I mean, it's orange, it's hot, I mean, fire's fire. What's, what's the difference there? I wonder about the motives of these guys. Did they have some wrong motives here? Were their hearts in the wrong place? I don't know the answers to all of that. But what I do know, and what the text says, is that God at some point had made clear and had stated, this is what I want. This is my will regarding the fire that is to be brought before me in worship. And what Nadab and Abihu did is they did something different. And what God made clear in verse 2 is that He didn't think much of what they did. What that says to me is that says to me that God needs people and He's looking for people. We read those verses from John chapter 4. God is seeking people who want to honor His will instead of being creative. What God is desiring is people who will give Him what He has requested, not offer up something that they think might improve or be better than what He has offered or said. And so, as we're talking with our friends and as we're thinking about this subject, here's maybe the question that we want to ask as it pertains to worshiping God musically. We want to ask, how confident are you that what you offer God in worship aligns with His will? How confident about that are you? 
Not asking how confident are you that it aligns with, with your will and what you want and what you think is a good idea. Of course you think it's a good idea. That's why you're doing it. No, what I'm asking is, is how confident are you that this is what God wants? Because remember, point number one, it's an offering to God. It's for Him. So how confident are you that God is going to accept that offering? Well, that's what brings us to this third principle. And that is the way that you have confidence that the offering that you bring before God is when you know His will. And His will is found for us in the Scriptures. Now, if we had the time this evening, as we think here about the Nadab and Abihu story, if we had time to just kind of walk through the last, I don't know, 15 chapters of the book of Exodus and the first 9 or 10 chapters of the book of Leviticus, well, I could show you what God's will was for Nadab and Abihu and all the people of Israel as it was clearly communicated in the law that God had provided through Moses. God spoke it. Moses recorded it. And it was then up to everybody else to abide by it. And in much the same way for us today, God has revealed His will for us. His Spirit guided men in recording it and putting it into a book that's called the Bible. And it is then up to each one of us to read it and to study it and to know it and to understand it so that we too can abide by it. Because the truth of the matter is, if we think that we can just give God whatever we want, just as long as, we have, as long as we have good intentions, as long as our heart is in the right place, and that somehow at the end of that God is obligated to accept it, then first of all, that flies in the face of everything that we know about God. And furthermore, it flies in the face of that principle that we've put right in the middle of all of this. You know, you can have a magnificent spirit. You can have a wonderful attitude. But if there is no truth in what you are doing, then Jesus says it's not true worship. We need both components there. Which means that it is fair of us to always be ready to ask the question, what's the Bible say? I mean, what's the Scripture say about that? Do we have a book, chapter, and verse that we can point to and be confident with? What has God commanded? You just ask Noah in the book of Genesis, chapter 6 and 7 and forward. Ask Noah if it was important for him to build that ark exactly as God had commanded. Ask Moses in the latter chapters of the book of Exodus if it was important for him to build that tabernacle exactly as God had instructed him. Ask Solomon if it was important for him to build that temple precisely the way that God wanted it to be done. Again and again in Scripture, we see that true followers of God, they seek out His will... And then they respond accordingly. And when we come to the subject of worship and how God wants to be worshipped musically, it really doesn't take us very long to figure out what it is that God wants. We open up our New Testament we just start reading. And we come across passages like Ephesians 5.19. In Ephesians 5.19, I read, I read these verses this morning, but for the purpose of kind of completeness, I want to read them again tonight. In Ephesians 5 and in verse 19, we find a verse that says, We are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That passage says God wants us to sing. 
We could add to that Colossians 3 and in verse 16. In Colossians 3 and in verse 16, what does God want? What does God desire for us? What is His will according to Scripture? Colossians 3 and in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. God wants singing. Let me add one more to that in Hebrews 13. In Hebrews the 13th chapter and in verse 15. In Hebrews 13 and in verse 15, the Hebrew writer says this. He says, through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge His name. You know, God basically saying to us, look, I'm, I'm going to make it really simple for you. When it comes to offering praise to me, worshiping me musically, here's what I want. Are you ready? You don't even need to take notes on this. I want you to sing. I just want you to sing. Sing from the heart, giving the fruit of your lips. God has taken the guesswork out of this for us. We don't need to know Greek. We don't need to parse and try to decode the text. God says, just sing. And so let me ask. Maybe this is what we want to ask our friends. Is that in light of those clear teachings in Scripture, what are the chances that if you arrive to worship today or any other day, and you start singing to God from your heart, with your lips, the fruit of your lips, what are the chances that God is going to look at that and God's going to say, "Uh uh-uh, nope, stop it. That is unauthorized. I do not accept that. What's the chances that's going to happen? Chances of that are zero. Zero percent. There's a zero percent chance God is going to be displeased with that. In fact, quite the contrary, there is a 100 percent chance that God is going to say, yes, that's exactly what I told you to do. That's exactly what I stated that I wanted and you did it. You obeyed my word, which leads directly into this fourth and final principle this evening, and that is when you obey God's word, then that is evidence of true worship. Do you see how we've cycled all the way back to the beginning now? Look with me in John the 12th chapter. In John chapter 12, how we respond to God's will, whether that be in worship or really anything for that matter, it has huge implications. In fact, it has eternal implications. In John chapter 12, Jesus is giving kind of a little preview of judgment day and He clues us in as to what the standard is going to be on that day. In John chapter 12, look with me beginning in verse 47. Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, somebody doesn't obey what I say, then I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Look at verse 48 now. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word, he does have a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. On that day, whenever it may be, and we may be very close to that day for all I know, but when that day comes, we will know fully and completely and finally whether God has accepted our service and our worship unto Him as our lives will be measured right alongside the Word of God. That's what Jesus says is going to be the standard. And so the question is, is is my life going to measure up? 
Was I obedient to His will? And when that day comes, if God comes to me, it's my turn. I'm now standing before the Lord. And God then asks me, Josh, why did you worship me with singing? My hope is, is that after I finally catch my breath, and after I pick my jaw up off the floor and pick my body up off of the ground, my hope is, is that I will have the presence of mind to point to the Scriptures, and I will say, Lord, that's why I sang. I sang because Ephesians 5.19 said to sing. I sang because Colossians 3.16 said to sing. I sang because Hebrews 13.15 said to give you the fruit of my lips. I sang because 1 Corinthians 14 talks about singing and singing with the understanding. Lord, that's why I did that. But if on Judgment Day I am asked, Josh, why did you worship me with instruments? Yeah, you sang some, but, but you also worship me with instruments in that music. And if my answer to them, him on that day is, well, Lord, that's, that's just kind of how I felt. That's just, I mean, I really liked it. I thought it sounded good. I thought it really kind of helped and added to the singing. Or, hey, I mean, that's how I was raised. That's what we always did in my family. That's just kind of part of the tradition that I grew up with. Then I'm afraid that I will not be ready to face Jesus and the judgment that follows. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16, one final passage. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verses 16 and 17, what Paul says here is that this book that it is the standard, and that it is all sufficient for us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 16 and 17, Paul says that all Scripture, it is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, and for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If it's a good work if it's something that we need to be involved in, and if it's something that we need to do, then this book is going to tell us. And then it'll be up to us to conform our lives and what we do in harmony with that book. And when we obey the Lord, particularly this evening as we think about in worship, when we obey what His Word says, then we can have the confidence that we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and I can know what Jesus was talking about in John 4 when He spoke to that Samaritan woman. I can know that I am a true worshiper. Now, in many ways, I really think almost these four principles are almost you know, elementary in a lot of ways. Overly simplistic. But sometimes that's kind of what we need to do. is We need to go back to the most fundamental of fundamentals so that we can come to an understanding of what God's will is for our lives and then react accordingly. I hope maybe those things will help us in our dealings with others. But you know, even as I look at those principles this evening and I look across this audience, what we need to do is we need to think about, all right, well, what am I going to do with all of that? You'll notice, once again, that really these principles are broad in their application. They don't just apply to worship. They apply to all things that God has given to us and what He wants us to do. Maybe right now as we begin to extend the invitation of Jesus Christ, we need to think a little bit about what, when it, what about when it comes to matters of salvation. What about that? There's lots of ideas out there about how a person is saved. 
There are some who teach that you can be saved just by just accept Jesus into your heart and just invite Him in. Some who say if you'll just pray this prayer, you can be saved. Some say you come forward and you kind of make an altar call and you just kind of prostrate yourself before the Lord right then and there and you just receive Jesus into your heart and into your life. You can be saved. Some are maybe even looking for something dramatic, a bright light or God speaking to them from heaven. But when we open up the Bible and we begin to read God's Word, we come to the realization of what His will is. And His will involves us hearing His Word, understanding it, Believing it, believing that Jesus is His only begotten Son, that He came to this earth, He lived as a man, He died, suffered, bled, rose on the third day and is crowned as Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the Son of God. God says you need to believe that. God says you need to confess Jesus before men. Make it known that yes, I do believe that He is Lord. He is the Son of God. God says you need to repent. You need to change your ways, change your thinking. And then allow that to change your life. Turn away from sin, turn to God. And God says that needs to be culminated in water. It's called baptism. Be immersed, be buried with Christ in and under the water so that we can be joined and united with Him. All of our sins will be washed away. God then adds us to His family. We are a part of the body of Christ. And frankly, it doesn't matter whether we agree with that or not, whether we like that or not. Maybe we've even thought of some better ways about that. That is what God has expressed. And that is His will for us. Have you taken those steps this evening? Are you a Christian? If you've never done those things before, we sure would love to see you do that tonight. Maybe you just need to talk about that. Maybe you need to study that a little bit more and come to a better understanding about what a person needs to do to be saved. We're here to help and we're ready to do that as well this evening. If you are a Christian but you've not been living right, not been serving the Lord as you should, then brother or sister, this is an invitation for you to make that right with God. Come back to Him in humility bow and prostrate yourself before Him and seek His forgiveness. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let's serve the Lord in a better way. Whatever your need may be this evening so that you can be right with God and do His will, we beckon you to come through the words of this song. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.